0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Father, we pray today as we open up your word, that God, your voice speaks clearly to us, that your Holy Spirit strengthen us, that we may respond rightly to you. For Christ's glory we pray. Amen. A scandal, a scandal. That was what the Roman emperor describes Christians' love for each other and for their neighbors. It's a scandal because Christians look different from the world that the emperor views and sees. There's a man called Flavius Claudius Julianus, or if you just want to call it short, Julian. He was a 4th century Roman emperor. He hated Christianity and he hated Christians because they were different. Julian hated the way Christians exhibit love and charity because he and those who worship the Roman gods, they do not have the same kind of love. Now listen to the frustration of Julian when he wrote about Christians in the 4th century. That's why he says, Christianity has been especially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers, and through their care for the burial of the dead, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for help that we should render them. Now, Julian, in the 4th century, he describes Christians' love as a scandal. For during the times of great turmoil, when everyone was for themselves, the Christians not only helped each other, they cared for strangers abandoned by their own emperor. At the risk of their own lives, they buried the dead of strangers. They cared for the poor and they looked after the outsiders. Now, while Julian describes Christians' love as a scandalous love, the apostle Paul calls it a continuing depth of love or a law of love. Now dear friends, what is Christian love? And how are we to live differently? Today we've come to Romans 13 chapter 13 verse 8 to 14. Today and we'll see how Paul will powerfully describe and argues what Christian love and Christian life looks like for them and for us. So if you have your bulletin closed, would you open it up uh, and, or your Bible as I begin by reading the passage uh, for us. We'll be looking at the few verses there throughout the whole session, so keep it open, it'll be great. Let me read this for us. Romans 13 verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Now that is something that we are very familiar with in our society. We live in a world that promotes accumulating debts. Are you in debts? No debts via credit cards, via loans, via installments. Businesses they love those who have a habit of accumulating debts. Almost anything you buy, you can go on credit, and you can go on uh, payment schemes. No banks. Banks love people who are stuck with debts. People who love that so much so that there's this big business called refinancing, that you can refinance the debts from one bank to the other. In fact, years ago, the head of a consumer banking told us bluntly while we were sitting there that the bank prefers customers who are always late in paying debt than those who pay on time. If you pay on time, the bank doesn't love you as much. If, you, if you're always late in your payment, they love you because there's a lot more to be gained from people who do not pay debt. Now we live in a world that promotes accumulating debt, not just financially, but we are also debtors of honor, of respect, even recognitions for those who are due. It could be governors, it could be, it could be colleagues, it could be parents. Basically, our neighbors, we live in a culture of accumulating for ourselves at the cost of others. But not so for Christians, says Paul. And picking up from last week's verse 7, this is what Paul says. Let me read to you verse 7 and then verse 8. Paul says, Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe tax, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding. Because as Christians, we exhibit our true worship to God by giving to everyone what we owe them, to governors, or to authorities, to employers, to colleagues, to bosses, to subordinates, to people we do not plagiarize. We do not take credits for those for what is not due for us. Nor do we, we hold respect and honor to our bosses, to our parents, to our children, to our spouse. We do not withhold taxes and revenues to governors nor refuse to return things that we have loaned, people have loaned to us in good faith. Now while I was writing this, I was looking at my bookshelf and there was one book there, a prize management book that my ex-boss lent me 10 years ago. Now it's time for me to call her and return her and see how she is. It's going to be embarrassing but Christians are not debtors in this world. Well, except for one debt that we can never fully pay off. Paul says it is the continuing debt to love one another. While all the other debts can and should be paid off, the debt of love to one another as well as to our neighbors is one debt that Christians can never fully pay off. Because this debt of love for others is not something that appeals to our human nature as if we are by nature very loving and other centered. Rather, this love appeals to the immense love and mercy that God has poured on us. It appeals to the love and mercy of God. The root of Christians' debt of love towards each other is based on the debt we owe God who has poured it to us. Now, over time, as a parent, I, I've learned that whenever I give my children instructions, um, that is not to their nature, they need a lot of persuasion. If I ask them to eat ice cream and watch TV, no doubt about it, they'll be all right there without a second ask. But if it's to do homework, to clear up the room, to help with some chores, I'll either have to go by threats, or I'll have to be very persuasive and exercise my skills. You no, know, Paul's persuasion on love, this depth of love, comes back to the whole book of Romans that he's been speaking about. He's been spending 11 and 12 chapters. It is a response to God's mercy for the undeserving Jews and Gentiles on you and on me. So going back to Romans 12 verse 1 and 2, which brackets these two chapters, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, you have heard this many times now, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, as we proactively pay the debt of love towards one another, we're actually expressing true worship towards God, remembering His mercy shown to us. In fact, it is a fulfillment of God's law as well. Look at verse 8b. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Now, there are two ways that we can look at this continuing depth of love that is specifically Christian. We look backwards to Romans 12, we look forward to this very verse. No, we have mentioned a first uh, look, which is the greater love of God towards us. God loved us so much that He gave us the sacrificial love of Christ. He's dying on the cross on our behalf. He saved us, His enemies from eternal death. And then He called us His children and honored us with a kingdom. A place in His Son's kingdom. No, he tops it up, calling us children. Now I want I want you to take an exercise with me now. I want you to take a deep breath and breathe out. Let's try again. <laughs> We're going to do some exercise now. Take a deep breath and breathe out. Now, I hope I hope you do that. Now, if you're a Christian. Here's what we are continually expressing. Now every time we breathe in and breathe out, we are one breath nearer to death. You were two breaths or some of you take more. It's closer. But by the very nature that for Christians, as we take in our breath, we are breathing out, we are one step closer to the kingdom of heaven rather than as we breathe, we are one step closer to face the judgment of sin that we have committed in our lives. So every time as we are breathing, it is by very nature of human Christians to realize that we are breathing the very grace that God has given to you and to me. And our continuing debt to one another is merely an outward response to the grace and mercy that God has poured into us. So that's the first. Now secondly, Paul explains here in Romans 13 verse 8 that this death of love is also a fulfillment of God's law because for Christians, it is our desire to obey God, to keep His will, to keep His commands. And Paul says that by keeping the the law of love, we have kept the fundamentals of the commands of God. Now to be clear, obeying God doesn't save us. But really, when we love God, the response is we want to obey Him. And Paul says, love is the underlying principle of all of God's law. So these two motivations for Christians love to love are distinctively Christian. It is different from the world's understanding of love. Because love is neither reactive to others, that is, we love people who love us, nor is it a, an appeal to our human goodness, as if by nature, we are other-centered. The love for Christian is a response to God's love, Romans 12, 1-2, and a fulfillment of God's law in Romans 13, verse 8-10. to Now, why do we spend a fair bit of time looking at this? Because this difference is crucially important. Because Christians' love is different from the world. The world's love is often subjective to the generational culture that we live in. And in our culture, love is celebrated as being accepting to all and judgmental to none. In our culture of love is accepting of all and judgmental to none. For Christians, our depth of love is bound to God's love for us and God's law to us. There's a huge difference when we think about Christian love. Listen to verse 9 and verse 10. Look at it with me. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commands there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now Paul, what is he doing? He's bringing parts of the Ten Commandments in to describe how love looks like. Love does no wrong to our neighbours, such as adultery or murder or theft or coveting what others have. Now in, in our culture now, the sexual ethics of the West, which we are quickly adopting here, uh, there are people who tells you and tells us that it is alright to commit adultery, to permit multiple partners, especially when it's consensual. Recently I was reading a book titled, If I Could Tell You Just One Thing, it is a record of supposedly the most valuable advice from the most remarkable people in the world and a prominent 97-year-old lady, a great and prominent writer, she gave this advice about marriage. I'm quoting from the book. Let me read this to you. She says, Do not be possessive, it's one of the most dangerous things, especially in relation to sex. There are a lot of people who think it's indecent to not be possessive when you're married. I think it's fatal. Do not let your passion trap you into trying to own the person. The trick is to love them, not to possess them. Her advice for married couples is to love the person rather than to restrict the sex. You know, In our world of growing confusion of relationships, a person struggling to justify on her desire to be with a married man, she said this and she wrote online, How can something be wrong if it feels so right? You know, in our world and our present age where sexual and emotional attraction defines love, the words of this lady will be echoed by many others. In varied relational attractions and objection to the expression of love is deemed by our changing culture as unloving and judgmental. But that's not how Scripture defines Christian love. When Paul says Christians are to love your neighbor as yourself, you know where he's quoting from? He's quoting from the Old Testament, but nearest to you, he's quoting from the Lord Jesus himself. Because this is what Jesus said when a teacher of the law tested Jesus. Jesus gave this answer in Matthew 22. You'll find this familiar, but let me read this to you from Matthew 22 verse 37. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest command. And the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Christians' love for God and love for people are intertwined. Although Paul is speaking in Romans 13 about the horizontal love between humans, this love is clearly to be an outpouring of our love to God. It's intertwined together. The law of love by Christians revolves around God's commands. So the harm to others is not subjective but it is objectively according to what God sees as harm towards each other. This is embodied in Paul's word when he says, Love your neighbours as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. It is the fulfilment of the law. Now as I pause here on to help us to think then, what is not Christian love? And what does Christian love look like in practice? Let's think a bit about what is not Christian love just think for a moment it, it is not an attempt to remove guilt by being legalistic it's also not an expression of emotions removed from God's law okay, catch the two it's so easy to fall on either side to um, attempt to remove guilt by just keeping laws or by being emotional removed from law i give you some examples On this, as we think about this, if we seek to pretend that we love by merely keeping commands, we may not commit physical adulteries, but we will let our minds and our eyes wander wherever we want. We may not murder, but we hold great bitterness against people we relate to. We don't hold a knife in our hand, we hold it in our hearts comes out from our mouth we may not covet others' possessions but we will never really rejoice with someone if they have something that we want, we long for ourselves they have it and we, we can't celebrate because we covered for it we may not see from the front but it's in our hearts we may give but it's only out of guilt that we give our money or our resources the commands without love is legalism, it's not the Christian love But the other spectrum, which we mentioned, if we express love, that's separated from God's commands, we are so quickly to fall into sentimentalism. That someone desires for something and we we feel for them and we agree with them. Someone who struggles and says, "I I wish that this is who God has made me. And we feel for them and we respond to them, never speaking what is to come when their last breath runs out either of this is not Christian love. It looks loving, but it's not Christian love. But if those are not Christian love, the question comes like, what does a Christian love look like in your life, in my life, as we deal with life and people? So according to Paul in scripture, it means this, that we do not violate each other before God, which in Jesus' words, is not just uh, adultery, but not to last after someone with our eyes or with our mind, that we love the other person enough not to violate them in our thoughts. We do not harm each other, which against Jesus puts in in Matthew 5-7, to that it's not just murder, but it's the hatred in the heart, that we do not hate people um, continually, but we let go of a hurt, and we do not plot against each other by coveting or by putting people down when something good happens to them. Rather, we are to evident our love by this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when we think about loving, it can be quite overwhelming because if we are reactive in our love, we we'll always struggle with guilt. When people ask for money and we don't give, and we, we feel guilty. But Christian love is actually proactive. It's not reactive, it's proactive. We plan on how we will regularly love those we could best love with our resources, with our time, with our being and recognize that it's costly on us and concurrently with all effort to see how they can in our loving for them, also come to know that God will love them. Because at the end of the day, that's what we want. We want to know that God loves us and saves us. And we want God to forgive our sins. And that is what we want for others. We, we use our resources. Where it, can, it could be for people to, to be able to come to know Jesus. It could be to love and give to people who are reaching out to Jesus. But we are proactive when we are loving. And not reactive to cover guilt. It may mean that we don't just give when we ask, when we ask for it but we work out who will give and who will serve and how that will both help or relieve them or extend the gospel. Christian love is not an attempt, let's put it this way. Christian love is not an attempt to remove guilt from life by giving because Christian love holds the unending tension of a debt that we cannot finish paying. The debt is always there, we cannot finish and we are proactively exercising intentional love, service and care and speaking the gospel and all the time asking God to help us do better, to be intentional and proactive. Now, if we have lived as a Christian for more than a day, you'll say, Andrew, actually, I can't do that all the time and neither can I because we find that we fail our neighbors ever so often and only one person has ever really fully loved their neighbors to the extent of living and dying, and we know that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So a wise preacher puts it this way Paul is not ignorant of our sinful tendency. What Paul is asking is not for us to have perfect, a holy perfection. What Paul wants us to have a holy direction. The speaker says, Paul is not asking us to have a holy perfection that we can love our neighbors perfectly, but He wants us to have a holy direction, to hold attention to love and pay the debt because it fulfills God's law and because it is a manifestation of our appreciation of the love that God has given us. We need to keep loving rightly. We need to keep living differently with God's help because our time is really, really short. Look at verse 11 and 12 as Paul carries on. And do this, understanding the present time, that the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. No, the urgency to love rightly, the urgency to live differently, comes because the final day of our salvation is coming nearer and nearer than before. Now, Just now you are breathing and now you are breathing. But now as you are breathing, you are nearer to salvation than when we first started with the exercise because Christ is coming. Paul warns of that great danger of spiritual slumber. Paul says, Wake up from your spiritual drowsiness. Focus on the coming heavenly kingdom where our salvation is rather than to be drawn towards the vain pursuits and the sinful pleasures of this world, which is built built upon the foundation of love, self-love. Now there's a famous story by John Bunyan called Pilgrim's Progress. Anyone has read it? Pilgrim's Progress? Seems seems to be the same people who when I asked last week uh, who read the book. Uh, If you have not, it's an amazing book and you should read it. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said he had read it at least a hundred times. And he was still reading it when he was writing that. Now, I want to read to you a short portion of this story and invite you to think about it with me. But since most of us have not read it, let me set the picture and the stage for you. Okay, at this stage, where what I'm going to read to you, the setting that was that there were two characters um, named Christian and Faithful. Now, they were on their journey towards God's kingdom. It's called the city, the celestial city. They was heading there. They had just escaped. Um, city of destruction, Christian, and he's heading there, and while they are there, they came to a town called Vanity. Now this town is famous for its lightheartedness, you go in, you have full of laughters and jokes, and humor, the atmosphere is great, there's a long standing fair, the fair never ends. And now Christian had just escaped from destruction, city of destruction, and is making his way there, and these two people come to the town of Vanity. So, Let me read to you this portion as they described this town of Vanity, a place that is dangerous for those who are spiritually asleep or slumbering. Let me read to you. It goes like this. Almost 5,000 years ago, there were pilgrims walking to the celestial cities as these two honest persons are, talking about Christian and faithful. Then Beelzebub, apollyon and legion and their companions they perceive by the path that the pilgrims make that their way to the city should lay through this town of vanity and that it should last all year round therefore at this fair all sorts of vanities are being sold and therefore at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, Trades, places, honors, pyramids, titles, countries, kingdom, lusts, pleasures, desires of all sorts, their whores, their wives, their husbands, their children, their masters, their servants, their lives, their blood, their bodies, their souls, their silver, gold, pearl, precious stones, whatever not, is all available. And moreover, at this fair, there is at all times to be seen juggling cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knives, rooks, of that of every kind. And here are to be seen too, and dead for nothing. Tabs, murders, adulteries, false swearers, and all kinds of red, blood-red color. And as in other fairs of last moment, there are several rows and streets under their proper name, where such and such wares are vented. Here's a Britain row, a French row, the Italian row, the Spanish row the German row, where several sorts of vanities are to be sold, but as the chief of all the fair, so the wear of the Roman, of Rome, and the merchandise are greatly promoted in their fair. I'm just describing a little bit as they describe this fair that they're heading towards. Now what I've just read was Paul, uh, Banyan's description of the Christian journey in life. And as we read through the story of the pilgrim's progress, we see this main character, Christian, facing temptations of every kind of worldly pleasures. They're all nicely displayed at the Vanity Fair to lure those in spiritual slumber, to embrace the never-ending offers that a town of Vanity offers, to draw hearts away and cause them to lose sight of the celestial city they're heading. Some merchandise looks sleazy, others look respectable, but all of them are meant to lure travelers away from the city of light and to take residence in the town of vanity now, dear friends this is Paul's warning in Romans 13 now, Christians are to wake up from spiritual dullness and love our neighbors while we have the opportunity to do so and we need to be spiritually perceptive and not remain in spiritual slumber and indulge in sin Paul puts it this way. Look at verse 12, verse 13. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. The dangers that Paul says here is the very opposite of the continuing depth of love for each other, and for our neighbors, this is a self-engrossed love, oblivious of God. Now eternity may seem far away, but Paul says it's actually very near, like the darkest moment just before the light of dawn comes. But the night of this present evil age is nearly gone, Paul is saying, "The day of Christ's salvation is almost here. the bring of the sun bursting out in his full glory is just." It's just reaching us. And Paul says, wake up, wake up. Put aside darkness. Put on the armor of light. Do not be caught indulging in the deeds of darkness. Now, darkness is a way of making strange perceptions in people's mind. Darkness is a way of making ugly things beautiful. Darkness has a way of making stolen food delicious. Giving illusions we can get away with sin. Defining or redefining lust as love, now, darkness has a way of describing wickedness as something as pleasurable. But that is not the way for Christians, because Paul says we must put aside deeds of darkness and behave decently, in the, as if it's daytime. And with that, Paul cites three pairs of vices as examples of deeds of darkness. Look at look at the three pairs. Of vices. The first pair are carousing and drunkenness. Now, while partying and drunkenness, they are most enjoyed where? In darkness. And those who indulge in them become careless with their emotions and their desires, and they are in grave danger, quickly descending into the next pair of vices, which is, which are spiritual immorality and debauchery or corruption. Now, where I was living in a certain part of Australia, there's this place kind of our Chinatown. It's a place of great contrast. In a day, you you find crowded with people, their grandchildren, their grandparents, their parents, their tourists. They are doing everyday activities. People are there eating tim sam, famous Vietnamese food. They are buying Chinese herbs, produce vegetables, seafood, cheap tourist gifts. People are queuing up for bubble tea. It's it's a very pleasant place to be at. It's nice. I love it. But when the sun goes down, the innocent disappears. Because there you have the neon lights comes up, the club comes to life, the picture of scantily dressed people are splashed across the walls of the clubs. Strong drinks are offered to those who get through the bounces. And those who stay long enough get to experience sensual pleasures that are offered to them. The moment the sun hits off, so do the innocents. Because darkness has a way of deceiving us. No Darkness, with the help of wild parties, drunkenness, little people who are morally drowsy or spiritually um, asleep. These patrons, they will lead them into foolishness, falling into grave sin and calling sin and sensual desires love. Now Paul warns them this way. Look at verse 13. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery. Now, some of us here will say, Andrew, come on, it never happens to me, I'm not even in that kind of environment. I won't fall into physical immorality and debauchery. But when Paul writes this, I think he writes as a warning, as a fool if we don't think of it, and think carefully and listen carefully to it. Because we must be watchful, because the Leo... And the dangers are not just there in the clubs. They are on our handphones, they are on our laptops, the leers of chat rooms, pornographies. They are in our office the opportunity for the quick flirt with our colleagues. They are in the business function, the entertainment, the work trips that we may go to. The lures come in different ways because the Vanity Fair is open 24-7 calling out to all who would listen to turn their eyes from the celestial city to make residence in a town of vanity. Now, brothers and sisters, if any of us here, we are struggling with deeds of darkness or sin, Paul says, get out quickly. Get out. Turn away from vanity fair. Turn back to God. Put away deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light, which is in God's word, which is in Christ, which is to look deep into the mercy that God has richly given us. As we have said in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, that were read so many times over these few weeks confess our sins, turn back to Christ and His Word. Turn back, look deep into the mercy of God. Now, the third set of vice steps away from the sensual darkness to the prideful darkness that hides in our hearts. Dissension. And jealousy. If you look at these two words, both of them are the opposite of loving each other. Dissension and jealousy tear relationships apart, leaving no room for love for anyone. If we have these two in us, you'll find that it's really hard, if not if if it's even possible, to love others, because they occupy your whole heart. Paul, while calling out his first hearers in Roman, the Roman Christians. They are bombarded by the vanity fair of Rome. He's also speaking to us. Are bombarded by the vanity of our culture and our lives. Sometimes we are not even obvious what are the vanities because we are living in our culture. They draws us with all kinds of vain merchandise, some opening openly luring, sensuous, desensitizing. Others are actually quite respectable. Calling us to be ambitious, to covet for more honor, more respect, more possession, more status, more enjoyment. At the expense of us giving out the depth of love to others around us. You can't have both. The depth of love that is meant to fulfill the law of God and reveal the mercy God has for us. Dear friends, as we pause here for a moment, let us take stock of the condition of our own Christian life. Just pause for a moment, think about our own Christian life. Perhaps ask ourselves a few questions. Do we have the desire to love others more and more as we think and reflect about Jesus Christ? Do we desire to love others more and more? Listen, we, we may not have holy perfection, but do we have the holy direction? Do we desire to love others more and more? Is the tension of love growing in us? We feel the tension to love. Even though we can't love perfectly, the tension is in us because we can't fully pay it. And are we waiting expectantly for our salvation that comes when Jesus returns? Or... Is our desire to love others just a small whisper? Just a small whisper, because we are dulled by spiritual slumber. The distraction of the vanity fair has almost consumed us. And are we influencing our neighbors with Christian love, or are the world influencing us with the worldly love? What love do we exercise? We, we do exercise love. What kind of love do we exercise? And perhaps tonight or in the coming week, if you use the Romans um, sermon journals or those flyers, write down some questions for you and for me to think through and prayerfully take stock of what is occupying our mind, what is filling our mind. Are the movies, the dramas, the social media, the books, the thoughts, the desires molding us towards or opposite Of what the Bible wants us to. It's worth for us as we are breathing our breath in this coming week. To think about it, do we desire to pay the debt of love to each other? Or are the deeds of darkness something we need to ruthlessly put off? Are we actively putting on the armor of light? Because at this point, Paul ends off with verse 14. And I will end off shortly with him. Paul says this, verse 14, look at it. He says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now some of us spend plenty of time dressing up. We dress up um, to look good, for a date, for work, for functions. Some of us never dress up. We always look like we are on holidays. I don't know which spectrum are you on. But Paul says here, dress up. Put on Christ. Put up, you dress up with the Lord Jesus Christ such that His character and His love are visible when we head out each day. When it takes effort to put on clothes, some of us may feel that the last minute ironing before you can get out to your work, you're already late but you need to iron. It takes effort but you will still do it before you get out. Paul says, it's not easy but we still do it. We put on Christ. What will help us to put on Christ is it that we need to meditate on his word more? To hear him speak to us. Is it that we need to pause to pray to God before we speak our mouth open our mouth to speak to people? Is it that we need each other to mirror to see if there are dirt on our face and our eyes and our lips that we are not cleaning up? That we need each other to help to clean up a little bit so that we can present Christ to the world. You know, Christians are to look different from the world. Julian saw it, he called it scandalous. But will people in our generation see anything of us Christians that are different from them? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today's passage. That in view of God's, your mercy, that we would love you and respond to you as your word called us, to love And pay off all debt except the debt of love because we have received from you and because it is the principle of all your laws. So Father, as we go forth in the coming week to love and serve you and people that you help us to be distinctively Christian in the way we express love for Christ's glory and waiting for His return as well. Amen.